Good morning, church. Human beings, believe it or not, can be rather tough. We do incredibly difficult things if we can find a reason to. When I was a child, my mother would take me shopping at Costco. When someone goes shopping at Costco, they don't go for just a few things. They go for the grocery haul. Children, believe it or not, are prone to impatience. However, my mother discovered that my childish wrath could be deterred by even the slightest whiff, even the thought of a Costco churro. I knew that if I cooperated, my mother was far more likely to purchase me a churro after we had checked out. This incentive gave my juvenile mind something to look forward to, to hope in. We do this throughout our lives. A lollipop after a visit to the doctor's office, vacation after the end of term finals, a bigger paycheck after a busy season in the office, rest after a career. We cling to something ahead to give ourselves hope, strength to carry on. While a lollipop after a flu shot can keep me appeased for at least a couple minutes, I believe we often seek after a hope for this life. What can deliver us? Not just from a flu shot, but from the toil and trial of living. When we read through the Psalms, we find the psalmist to be deeply concerned and engaged with these questions. Psalm 26 and 30 are proof of this assertion. When studied together, they tell a coherent narrative, a call to the Lord for deliverance, followed by a response to the Lord's actions. When combined, we see the following. Worshiping God for his eternal deliverance. Worshiping God for his eternal deliverance. For the sake of refreshing our minds, we're going to read Psalm 26 again. If you'll turn there with me. Of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites, I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, 
in whose hands are evil devices, in whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Mapping Psalm 26's phrases and themes reveals a chiastic structure to the text. Reveals a chiastic structure to the text. As we survey through the psalm with its intentional structure in mind, we find two ideas present throughout the entirety of it. These two points will make up our first and second points for Psalm 26. The first being... Only the righteous may enter the Lord's presence. Only the righteous may enter the Lord's presence. This chiastic structure informs us that the central idea of the text will be found at its center. So this is where we go. David opens up his central stanza, verses six and seven, with an image of priestly purification. I wash my hands in innocence, writes David. This is a borrowed concept as we actually find this idea presented to Moses by the Lord who said, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. When priests were going to enter the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord was, they had to wash themselves, else they would die if that wasn't made clear by the text. Entering the presence of the Lord was not a casual occurrence. It required clean hands to enter the presence of a holy God. David is making a poetic statement about the status of the righteous, those who may enter the Lord's presence. If physically unclean, the priest would be killed for entering the presence of the Lord. If unrighteous, David would be unable to enter the Lord's favor and blessing. If his hands were cleaned, then David would be able to enter the Lord's presence and do what the structural center of the song says he desires to do, to proclaim thanksgiving to the Lord and tell of his wondrous deeds. That is the center of this psalm, to proclaim thanksgiving to the Lord and tell of his wondrous deeds. We make an important conclusion then. The presence of God is a place of worship. 
With this in mind, David's introductory appeal is to the Lord to vindicate him. This is not a word many of us casually throw around in day-to-day conversation. Vindicate means to clear of blame or suspicion, to acquit, to prove something or someone as justified. As justified. This term justified is a common idea for New Testament theology. So what does justified mean? (laughs) To be declared as innocent or righteous. So what does it mean to be righteous? (laughs) Think we're going to keep this definition simple. To be righteous is to be right with God. To be righteous is to be right with God. So, to return to vindication, David is requesting that God declare David's relationship with him as right, as how it should be. David is acknowledging the truth that only the righteous may enter the Lord's presence. David seems confident the Lord will vindicate him. So confident, he asks the Lord to try his heart and mind. How could David make such a bold claim? Would we have such courage? As we read through Psalm 26, we can compile a list that forms David's case. David has walked in his integrity. Verse one, he has trusted in the Lord without wavering. He is, his eyes set on the Lord's steadfast love. Verse three, he walks in the Lord's faithfulness. He does not sit with liars nor hypocrites. Verse four, he hates the assembly of evildoers, nor does he sit with the wicked. Verse five. He proclaims thanksgiving to the Lord and he tells of the Lord's wondrous deeds. Verse seven. He loves where the Lord's glory dwells. Verse eight. Finally, David numbers himself in the great assembly, the assembly of the righteous. In verse 12. As we reflect on this list, we can observe some common threads. David has faith in the Lord. David loves the Lord. David desires to be in the presence of the Lord and David is reliant on the Lord. As we've seen throughout the Psalms, the wicked and their ways are highlighted as the antithesis to the way of the righteous, the opposite. David claims to not sit amongst them. Instead, he walks in the Lord's faithfulness toward the Lord's steadfast love. He desires righteousness so that he may dwell in the great assembly, not the assembly of the wicked. As we've seen over and over again in the Psalms, righteousness looks a certain way. 
In the most basic sense, righteousness lived out is a love of the Lord and a hatred of evil. The righteous love to worship the Lord. But does righteousness demand obedience? To consult Christ, our Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love God, we should seek to please him, to draw near to him, to know his commands and follow them. Works are a natural response, a natural response to love of the Lord in faith. Does David seem burdened by his worship? by his obedience. I would argue the opposite. David loves to serve and glorify the Lord. Yet with all of this stated, righteousness is not something we earn, but something we are given. Our second point is just that for Psalm 26. Only the Lord can make us righteous. Only the Lord can make us righteous. As we consider this second point, we must return to a contextual view of the text and factor in who David is addressing in Psalm 26. Who's he writing to? Our audience assists us and informs us in our interpretation. Galatians is a letter written to the church of Galatia. Genesis was written for and to the people of Israel. Who was Psalm 26 written to? Our answer is found in verse one. Vindicate me, O Lord. David is writing to the Lord. His request is to the Lord. Look back through Psalm 26 at the request of David. Vindicate me in verse one. Prove me in verse two. Do not sweep my soul away in verse nine. Redeem me and be gracious to me in verse 11. Psalm 26 is a petition, a plea of David to the Lord. He is not writing to a judge or a king, but to the judge and the king. And as we reflect back over David's appeals to the Lord, why would he ask the Lord to judge him? Let's walk through David's argumentation in this Psalm thus far. David asks for the Lord to declare him as righteous to search his actions in heart and mind and see that David relies on the Lord. David states he is not found amongst the wicked of this earth. Instead, David desires to be in the presence of the Lord. David loves the Lord in the place where his glory dwells. This then leads us to verses eight through nine, which read, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life 
with bloodthirsty men. David desires to not be swept away from the Lord like the assembly of the wicked is. His argument, if he does not gather with the wicked on this earth, why would the Lord affiliate David with the assembly of the wicked in judgment? Thus is the flow of David's case. This appeal makes sense, though it's complicated when we review the life of David, most specifically his egregious sins. David was an adulterous murderer, a man of falsehood and a hypocrite. He struggles to satisfy his own qualifications found in verses four and five. Verses 11 and 12, which are tied to verses 1 and 2 by our chiastic structure, our parallels, make David's case much more interesting. David returns to a prior statement in verse 11, saying he will walk in his integrity, which is mirroring verse 1. This is followed by a request for the Lord to redeem and be gracious to him which is the parallel concept to the call for vindication and judgment found in verses one and two. A man without sin does not need redemption nor grace. Yet the cry for redemption and grace is consistent with the rest of David's appeals because when we look back to his list, David is appealing to the Lord's character, his faithfulness, his love, his trustworthiness, his wondrous deeds. Paul, discussing Abraham, wrote, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. David had a grasp that it was only by faith he could be brought into the eternal presence of God. And it was only God who could bring David into his eternal presence. Salvation by faith alone, church, is grace. Salvation by faith alone is grace. Paul confirms this saying, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham. How could a man like David have such confidence 
that the Lord would justify him, vindicate him, declare him as right. Because David believed. David believed. And just like Abraham, he knew it was counted to him as righteousness. We find it in Psalm 26.1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. taking all of this into consideration, we look to our central verse equipped with the knowledge that David is making a petition to be declared as righteous with God. The result, Lord, bring me into your presence. I long to worship you, Lord. Let me worship you forever. Brothers and sisters, we too can join in this plea. Just as Abraham was called righteous by faith, just as David was, so too are we. Though we see this all the more clearly because of the work of Christ. God can declare us as righteous because Jesus bore the penalty of our sins. He has taken our place. Our response, like David, is worship. And is David confident that the Lord will deliver him? Church, his faith is unwavering and his footing is set on flat ground. The psalmist knows who the Lord is. He knows that the Lord alone gives righteousness to the faithful and the psalmist is sure of both his faith and the Lord's grace. This realization helps us to further clarify the place of obedience in the life of the righteous. We obey because God has made us righteous. The order matters. God has acted. If you think you can impress a God whose resume includes creating and upholding the cosmos, you are mistaken. God has counted our faith as righteousness because he, as David writes, is gracious. If all of this is true, and only the Lord vindicates, why are we looking to be justified by anything or anyone else? Only the righteous may enter God's presence and only God can make us righteous. It turns out who or what we seek to be justified by is one of the most telling signs of who or what we worship. It's no mistake that David associates his petition for righteousness with a zeal for worship. Church, please hear me. We worship what we think makes us righteous. We worship what we think makes us righteous. 
Too often we misplace our worship because we misplace our hope like a child longing for a churro. We convince ourselves that being a good husband or wife will deliver us. So we worship our spouse. We believe that being a good parent is the key to life. So we worship children. We believe that the next promotion or raise will set us free. So we worship a job, a boss, a company. We crave attention. So we worship our social groups. In doing this, we do anything but realize that the only one worthy of our praise is the Lord who can truly declare us as righteous, as right with him. To restate the very point, only the Lord can make us righteous. This becomes all the more important when we toss our idols aside and realize that only the Lord can deliver us. David asks that the Lord not sweep his soul away with sinners. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. God saves the righteous and only he can make us so. David in Psalm 26 pleads with the Lord for deliverance that he might not be swept away from the Lord, but instead allowed entry into the Lord's presence. As we turn to Psalm 30, we find our narrative of deliverance advanced. Where Psalm 26 is a petition for deliverance from death and into life, Psalm 30 is a song of praise to God for answering such a request. Psalm 30, though authored by David, opens with a note telling us an important interpretive clue. This psalm was read at the dedication of the temple, an event that occurred after the death of David. Such an application educates us that this psalm's message extends beyond the life of David and speaks to the history of the nation Israel. The dedication of the temple was a celebration unlike any other as the nation of Israel celebrated the establishment of a house for the Lord. It would have been a time of reflection, gratitude, and joy. As we read through the psalm, Keep this tone in mind. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O oh, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. 
You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As we reflect on Psalm 30, I cannot help but notice that the author's reflection on a time when he cried to the Lord, verses 6 through 10, captures many of the ideas found in Psalm 26. In Psalm 30, we find an answer to the question of if the Lord has delivered the psalmist. And like with our last psalm, we find chiastic structure present in the psalm. In Psalm 30, our central statement is weeping may tarry or last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The idea of deliverance out of night and into day, which thematically flows through the entire psalm, makes up our two points as we further advance in the story of redemption. As this breakdown suggests, the first point for Psalm 30 is that God delivers the righteous from death. God delivers the righteous from death. As we read through the psalm, we see that the psalmist was well acquainted with the Lord's deliverance from death. Consider these statements. You have drawn me up, or you have not let my foes rejoice over me, found in verse one. You have brought up my soul from Sheol, in verse three. For David, God had delivered him from death many a times, By God's blessing, David had struck down Goliath, an adversary capable of crushing David. He had rescued David from Saul's bitterness, from Absalom's schemes, and from his enemy's hands. As we consider the psalm in the context of Israel, we can again put together quite the list of events that were probably going through the mind of the people at the dedication of the temple. God had preserved the line of Abraham from death by giving Abraham and Sarah an heir. He delivered Joseph from a literal pit. Jacob and his sons from famine through Joseph and then delivered them from the Egyptians. The Lord brought the Israelites through the wilderness, delivered them in battle against the people occupying Canaan and from their oppressors in the time of the judges. God had delivered his people time and time again from death. In many of these examples, the Lord heard the cries of his people and he answered them. Why? 
As we survey the Old Testament, we find Israel at the center of many stories. One of the most important stories in establishing the nation is the Exodus story. After delivering them, the Lord called Moses. The Lord told Moses this. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Lord calls Israel a treasured possession among all people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel would have had a special relationship with the Lord and therefore a special role. God would display his character and goodness through his people. This chosen people, though, were quick to turn to idols in the ways of the world. In these times, God brought consequence upon the people. By the grace of God, they would realize that without the Lord, they were nothing. And that their only hope was to repent and turn back to God. And so God displayed his character through forgiving Israel, through bringing them back in, through restoring the blessing, and through delivering them from the calamity and sorrow plaguing them. God displayed his character by delivering them from death. David writes that the Lord has both drawn him up from Sheol and restored his life from among those who reside in the pit. Sheol, rather simply, is death, the place of death. God had delivered David from death and from the dead. Church, are we not dead in our trespasses without the grace of God? Are the wages of our sins, which we have earned, are they not death? We find ourselves in a situation described by the psalmist in need of deliverance. However, this is not the final status of the Christian, dead, in death. We find the truest sense of deliverance in the work of Christ. We've been brought out of our spiritual death restored to life from among sinners. We were participants in the assembly of the wicked, but now we have been drawn out from it. The gospel refuses to be silent in the Psalms for the Psalms declare the truth of Christ. God delivered Israel. He delivered David and he delivers us. Christ, speaking to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet 
shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you're realizing that only God can make you righteous, if you are struck with the sense that only God can deliver you, that you are in death, please, after the gathering, talk to a pastor. They would love to walk you through what life in Christ looks like. Deliverance is not just one piece of work though. Deliverance from death is not the end. In fact, let's look to verse one, which opens with, I extol or I exalt you, O Lord. This introduction is similar to Psalm 26. We find David asking the Lord to ask or to act. Here in Psalm 30, we find David in the act of zealous praise. As we've already mentioned, the Lord has delivered David from death and sorrow, but the Lord's work has not ended there. The Lord has not just brought the author out of death, but into blessing and favor. This is our second point. God replaces his people's sorrow with joy. God replaces his people's sorrow with joy. He is healed. He's restored to life. He has displayed favor lasting a lifetime. He's brought joy. He's been merciful. He has turned sorrow into dancing and he has clothed the psalmist in gladness. These images of healing, lifelong favor, the dawn, dancing, and being clothed in gladness. They're images of celebration. The parable of the prodigal son comes to mind as the wandering son returns home. Listen to the father's commands to his servants. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This son who had been numbered amongst sinners returns home unworthy of his father's love. Yet the father not only brings him back in, he clothes him in the best robe he owns. He prepares a feast and he calls for dancing. As we think of David and Israel, consider what the Lord delivered them, not just out of, of, but into. David was delivered out of Goliath's hands and into the favor of a nation. He was delivered out of Saul's clutches and onto the throne. Abraham's family grew from Isaac to a nation. Joseph was not only saved from death, but was established in a place of authority. 
Israel was not only taken out of slavery in Egypt, but into a land rich in resources and blessing. And as they dedicated the temple, they were sure to realize God had provided for their nation in abundance. God had taken them out of sorrow and brought them into his favor. What then has God brought the Christian into? Is a psalm simply a promise of material wealth? A plot of land good for growing grain and grape? A nice house? A white picket fence? If the Lord has removed the chains that bound us to sin, then what are our robes of gladness? Paul writes, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian has been clothed in the gladness of Christ's righteousness. We have been delivered out of death and robed in the best that God could offer his only begotten son. What joy we have. And while this joy is here now, it is also a future one. In one of his letters to the church of Corinth, Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, it is easy to become lost in the darkness of life. Scripture is quick to remind us that we have an eternity in God's presence. Can you see the dawn? The sun has risen. When we experience sorrow, when we suffer, when we face trial, do not lose sight of what is ahead. We have a God who turns transient sorrow into eternal joy. We have a God who turned three days in the grave into an eternity on the throne. There's a dangerous possibility of applying this psalm in a way that feels more immediate, warm and fuzzy. We might be quick to jump to a transient application. Yet doing so ignores the closing of Psalm 30. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Forever. The psalm is not about a tomorrow that passes. 
There is no better evidence than the last chapters of Revelation. This last Sunday, I had the pleasure of walking through Revelation, specifically chapters 21 and part of 22 with the youth group of this church. And as we read those chapters, I was struck with a joyous realization. Considering what we have discussed in Psalm 30, listen to these two sets of verses describing what is to come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And if this image of sorrow's end was not enough, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We revisit our central statement of Psalm 30. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Church, the Lord has predestined for his people to dwell in a place where there is no more weeping, for he will wipe away every tear. There is no more night only eternal day for his glory shines brighter than any sun we can imagine. And the connections do not stop there. God's people are in his presence. The very thing David longs for in Psalm 26, the Lord has delivered them from death, not just a physical one, but the second death, total separation from his goodness and grace. The Lord will not sweep their souls away with sinners. He will deliver his people into eternal life. And those in this new holy city will worship God. And they will be his people, delivered by the Lord, free from sin and its sorrows. And he will be their God. The eternal joy given by God is met with eternal praise we give him. The eternal joy given by God is met with eternal praise we give to him. Like David, our response is worship. With both Psalms in view, let's appreciate the full picture. Only the righteous can enter the presence of God and only God can make us righteous. And he has in this righteousness given to us because of Christ's work results in us being delivered from death and into an eternity of joy in his presence.
So as we wait to leave this body, this tent, we worship. We worship God for what has happened and what is to come. When we suffer, we remind ourselves that this night of life on this earth is one that is passing away and into what God has prepared for us. Life in Christ is not something we are waiting for. Eternity is not something we are waiting for. I can hear the footsteps of Peter and John. It's dark, yet they run. They have to know if it's true. They arrive at a place that only a few days ago filled them with a sense of darkness and sorrow. A place of night. But all they can feel at this moment is shock and wonder. They stare into the empty tomb as the rays of dawn fill the sky. Church, the resurrection is the beginning of our eternity. We have life in Christ. With the resurrection of Christ our Lord, our weeping turns to dancing, our sackcloth to robes of gladness, our sorrow to joy. We have been delivered, and He is our hope. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we, like the psalmist, look to you for everything. Lord, we acknowledge our inability to achieve righteousness by our own power. Only you can declare us righteous. Only you can make it so. Father, you are merciful. You are gracious and redemptive and loving beyond measure. You have shown your people mercy in sparing us from the consequence of death through sending your son. You have shown us grace by offering us salvation through faith alone, robing us in your son's righteousness. You are redemptive, turning sinners into saints who will worship you forever. You've shown us love in all of this, inviting us into your presence, not just on this earth through your spirit, but into eternity. Lord, we see the sorrow and suffering of today, the darkness of this world. We await your return with both patience and longing. As we wait, we worship you now, giving you thanks for not just what you have done, but who you are. We tell of the wonders you have done, chief among them, descending, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming return of your son. Thank you, Lord, for numbering us as members of the great assembly, the assembly 
of the righteous. We will worship you forever. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord, we pray. Amen.